Hello, and welcome to the Beyond Stewardship podcast. I'm your host, Dave Warners, one of the editors of Beyond Stewardship, New Approaches to Creation Care. Beyond Stewardship is available from Calvin Press at calvin.edu slash press and from major online retailers. The Beyond Stewardship podcast is a series of interviews with the chapter authors of Beyond Stewardship. My guest today is my friend and colleague, Becky Roselius Haney, author of Chapter 10 in Beyond Stewardship, entitled A New Worldview. Welcome, Becky. Thank you, Dave. I'm happy to be here. All right, great. Now, I know you as a friend and a colleague from over in the economics department. We are co-conspirators on many of the sustainability initiatives that happen here at Calvin. Uh, But why don't you introduce yourself a little bit more fully for the listeners? Sure, Dave. Yes, as you said, I'm an associate professor of economics at Calvin University. I earned my PhD in economics from the University of Chicago, Mm -hmm. uh, and that will become important a little bit later in this interview. Okay. Uh, My research interests include the economics of sustainability and resource depletion and energy transitions. Mm -hmm. And because I'm interested in the interaction of faith and sustainable economic activity, I took a short break from my academic career a while back to earn a Master's of Divinity, too, from Duke University. Mm-hmm. And after that, I returned to academia, but also served as a pastor for five years to a Native American congregation in my home state of Oklahoma. So then in 2008, I moved to Grand Rapids to teach at now Calvin University. And I've enjoyed especially the many opportunities to work across disciplines at Calvin. Uh-huh. So. Uh, it sounds to me like you yourself are kind of an example of multidisciplinarity. <laughs> multidisciplinarity. Uh, you are a former pastor at a Native American congregation, a PhD economist, you're a data scientist, an environmental activist, not to mention a teacher. So um, maybe a little bit more, how did all this, I mean, what, are you sort of, do you have a hard time focusing on <laughs> one particular thing? You know, there is one, that's one answer. Uh-huh. I, I could have severe ADHD. <laughs> um, the, the spin that I usually try to put on it uh, is that I try to follow God's prompting. Mm-hmm. Uh, nice. And that has taken me into some unexpected directions. Mm-hmm. I do have a curious spirit, maybe mm-hmm. even a wild hair. Uh-huh. Um, God did give me a head for numbers and a heart for people uh-huh. and probably an extra dose of curiosity. Uh-huh. So all that together has sort of emerged or led to a lot of multidisciplinarity and sort yeah. of forays into a variety of contexts. Yeah. I'm maybe a little hard-headed, and so for me to learn lessons, I might have to just be in the mix, mm-hmm. in the context, mm-hmm. in the Native American community to mm-hmm. learn about that, those yeah. kinds of things. And so I've, I've kind of seen it as a delightful tug of war between uh-huh. head and heart. One of the things I've really appreciated about you being part of this process is how open you are and how comfortable you are talking with people in different disciplines. So you've been a great fit and I've really been uh, pleased to have you on board. Thank you, Dave. Yeah. I really enjoyed that part mm-hmm. of the process too. And mm-hmm. um, I've got a few interesting stories from mm-hmm. uh, those interdisciplinary conversations. All right, well, let's save those for a little later in the, sure. in the uh, conversation here. Yes. Now, you know, another discipline you, that you as an economist bring to your chapter uh, is right at the start because you draw on a lesson from history. So um, why does this particular approach of using history to make your point, to make the point 
that an economist wants to make. Talk about that a little bit. Why is that so significant? I think um, it might be helpful for me to back up a little bit and talk mm -hmm. about how I even started to hear about the Dust Bowl and okay, how sure. I saw the parallels and some implications for economics. You know, as I mentioned, I, I am originally from Oklahoma, mm -hmm. and the Dust Bowl is actually still in living memory, or mm -hmm. it was until just a few mm -hmm. years ago. My grandparents, all four of my grandparents, lived through it. Oh, wow. Um, and even though they lived to tell about it, they never would. They would never talk about it. Mm -hmm. I still have family that live out in those epicenters of where the Dust Bowl occurred. And so I was curious um, about uh, wanting to know more about this. And Timothy Egan, um, who's a journalist, wrote that yeah. really interesting book, The Worst Hard Time, The yeah. Untold Story of Those Who Survived the Great American Dust Bowl. Right. And right. so on one long road trip from Grand Rapids mm -hmm. to Oklahoma City, I listened to that. Uh -huh. And I just had to stop, pull over to the side yeah. of the road and take notes half the time because uh. it seemed like it was telling a parable mm. that had incredible implications for today. Mm -hmm. It was also connecting to part of your own history and your family's history. Yes. Right. So yes. you probably found it especially compelling because of that. It, it was. Yeah. And it also brought to light how the way the Dust Bowl has been explained uh -huh. to me in school, in class, in history books, was not at all the way the story mm -hmm. was fleshed out in this book. Mm -hmm. There was Originally, most people, including myself, think of the Dust Bowl as a natural disaster. Right. It was a drought. It was a drought. It was a natural disaster. But what struck me was the relationship of humans mm -hmm. and the complicity, unwitting complicity mm -hmm. of humans in creating the actual collapse caused by the Dust Bowl. Uh -huh. The people that were there were my family. My yeah, grandparents right. and great-grandparents, they are well-meaning, hard-working, faith-filled right. people. And yet they unwittingly were mm -hmm. contributing to a scenario that led to absolute, utter economic and, and ecological right. disaster, right. collapse. Mm -hmm. It was not an unlucky, unexpected natural event. It had been predicted and they had been forewarned by scientists. Mm -hmm. And that set shivers down my spine. Yeah. It right. feels ex so parallel to today. So from that really compelling case study, uh, your chapter is about really making a significant perspectival shift. Can you explain a little bit more how you envision that shift? Well, that perspectival shift actually comes from my own economics discipline mm -hmm. and the need for a perspectival shift mm -hmm. in it as well, mm -hmm. uh, the kind of the assumptions that economists make in just our general way of doing things is that technology will solve all our problems. There is a lot of pride, mm -hmm. I think, in economic theory and mm -hmm. the worldview is that there are unlimited resources uh -huh. and that we can, and as we have seen a lot of evidence of in the past, usually invent our way out mm -hmm. of some sort of ecological disaster corner we've sort of gotten ourselves into. Mm -hmm. And because of that, I believe it makes it hard for us to believe that something new could be happening or that it actually might not be possible, that there might actually be biological or ecological mm -hmm. limits to right. what we're doing. And that view 
is not common mm -hmm. among certainly not the University of Chicago crowd mm -hmm. that I uh, run around <laughs> with. But it has begun to barely, mm. be, has begun to be taken seriously, uh -huh. particularly after the financial collapse. So you're starting to see some hopeful signs? I am. Uh -huh. And in fact, from the most unlikely place, right at the epicenter uh -huh. of researchers mm. developed out of, or formed out of University of Chicago as mm. well. And so that, to be honest, that gives me hope. Because uh -huh. if there could be converts at the center of the, the, the wrong paradigm right, to try right. to make a shift, I'm very hopeful. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, now, your chapter has a, a protagonist shall we say, mm. in this um, John Wesley Powell yes. uh, person. And I'd heard about John Wesley Powell, you know, growing up, reading biographies. He was this great explorer, mm. went down the Colorado River and all these sorts of things. Uh, I was not aware that he was out in the Western lands, um, really kind of doing, doing like a, a, first, um, a first approach or a first assessment uh, for the government. And, and, and then sending back advice, uh, well-informed advice that he gained from Native American people that he lived with yeah. and, and um, spent time with. Um, so talk a little bit more, if you would, about John Wesley Powell, such an interesting person. Yeah, I actually would, am not a biologist or an ecologist, mm -hmm. so I never heard of John Wesley oh, Powell. Okay. Um, and he just sort of emerged as a figure in these stories as I continued to mm -hmm. kind of dig into what was happening. Uh, mm -hmm. Timothy Egan, Egan uh, referred to John Wesley Powell in his book and that he had been, John Wesley Powell had been present mm -hmm. in the late 1800s in the area of the Dust Bowl mm -hmm. and had surveyed the area for the government and had presented a plan for how to develop this mm -hmm. different kind of land than we've ever seen before in America. This was very desert, dry not humid, yeah. and he sent a plan back and he specifically said, the way that the government is doing things now will destroy this land uh -huh. and lead to a natural disaster. Uh -huh. But the way the government was doing things was basically the land run model. Mm -hmm. You just divide the, the land all up into a neat grid of 160 acres, you know, sections or squares, right. and you just let people randomly run out, grab them, stake that land, and that be uh, how you assign. Everybody gets their own square. Everybody gets their own square. Yeah. And you, you, you know, you prove that land yeah. by improving it, by building your house, by doing your uh, independent mm -hmm. farming and, mm -hmm. and all of that. And it was based mm -hmm. on an idea that humans are uh, very independent from the mm -hmm. land, that we are technologically savvy, and that uh, we really can master the land and make it do mm -hmm. and provide for us the way we want it to mm -hmm. without acknowledging its own uh, particular ways of being. That's right, right. So Native Americans, this is an obvious question, but Native Americans did not grid out the land. <laughs> they did the <laughs> right? opposite. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So talk about their approach. So yeah. this, is, this touches a little bit uh, of a personal note mm -hmm. too, and it's, uh, I would not have believed the, the, the truth in John Wesley Powell's mm. stories and his, uh, um, his recommendations, mm. really, unless I'd seen mm. um, indigenous life up close. Mm -hmm. 
uh, as I mentioned, you know, I was a pastor in the Native American congregation, and uh, I, I'm from Oklahoma originally, and I went back and lived there for about five years. Mm -hmm. uh, and during that time, I was in academics, but I was also mm -hmm. uh, in the kind of in the center of where five different tribal headquarters were, mm -hmm. and uh, one of the few white pastors in the Native American United Methodist Conference um, that was preaching there. And I was serving and in that church, but I was more being formed by my experiences right. in that community. Right. And um, yeah. yeah, they they took me under their wing. Sometimes uh, we think we're giving, but we're receiving oh, that, that as was, much or more. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, that was very very reciprocal. Yeah. And um, while I was there, you know, I saw modern day indigenous life, hmm. which is kind of tattered sure. uh, from the past, but it lent credibility hmm. to these stories that I read hmm. um, in John Wesley Powell, where the land was is held in common mm -hmm. and the the idea that you could operate your own little slice of life mm. separate from the rest of your kin including not just humans but the rest of the uh, environment mm -hmm. is just not even it's just not it's just a foreign yeah. concept it makes no sense right. uh, one of the phrases that you hear all the time in just natural conversation is all my relations you mm -hmm. know and in, in native peoples, uh, I don't, at least the peoples that I was around, sure. I don't know that all Native people say sure. this, but often have that phrase, all my relations. We, it's a, to reinforce the idea to our younger generations that we are in relationship. We are yeah. kindred spirits. Mm -hmm. And uh, as one researcher um, or anthropologist calls it, they have a kin-centric mm -hmm. worldview rather mm -hmm. than anthropocentric mm -hmm. worldview. Recognizing all the relationships that they're involved yeah. in, they're, they're, they're knit together yeah. in these various communities, and it's not just human communities. Right, right. And there's, yeah. a, there's a humility in right. that. It takes humility to say we are a part mm -hmm. of creation rather than managers of some mm -hmm. sort of abstract stockpile of natural resources to use yeah. for our own good. That's right. Now, why, why do you think and sort of, I'm hearing some answers already to this question in some of your explanations, but why do you think John Wesley Powell's recommendations to the government were just ignored? I mean, what, what was going on there? Well, it's interesting. He was probably 100 years before his time. Mm. Uh, he probably understood the Brentlet Commission's, mm. you know, view <laughs> of sustainability, mm. our definition <clears throat> that, you know, you make decisions today to uh, leave the future generations um, better off than they were, yeah. um, he, he was going against the tide of American pride. Mm. Uh, we had been so successful of mm. doing th this particular way of, of um, granting land. We had, yeah. uh, in the m very humid and you know, forested eastern lands, found this a very successful process. You right. could just grid things out and people could just thrive. Mm -hmm. and it seemed to be uh, kind of like throwing a, a stone under the wheel mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, uh, putting um, out the fire, yeah, you know, by for yeah. him to say, look, the lands out here are They're vastly different. different and you need to orient our human societies towards the topography of the land. Mm -hmm. Communities need to be assigned a particular uh, watershed and care for that in community. Yeah. 
and you, we can't just go rip into this land and just do irrigation and, and um, kind of create these independent farms uh, without doing severe damage. So his recommendations were too counter. They were too different from the recipe that had been working and it had yeah. been working quite well. It had been working quite well. And of course, you know, the powers that be yeah. um, would not have been able to have moved as fast, had uh -huh. been able to gain as much profit. You know, the railroads right. were ready to go. And it's, and the people, the mm -hmm. settlers themselves were ready. Okay. You know, there was overgrowth elsewhere and there looked like there was just this promise of green pastured land. Yeah. Why in the world would you not let people just go out there and stake their claim and start building their livelihood? So it, he was yeah. up against a, a certain measure of convenience as well. Absolutely. And his message would have made things much less convenient, it much less efficient. Much less efficient, yeah. yes. As uh, mm -hmm. if, if efficiency is the only thing that mm -hmm. you care about, mm -hmm. then you miss a lot of mm -hmm. l issues that will spoil that efficiency, yeah. but at a later date. Yeah. Now, I, I can't help but, but uh, think that there's, there's some lessons from that history, and which is why you put it in your chapter for yes. today. And I'm thinking specifically about climate change. I think there's been a lot of work that's been done. There have been a lot of recommendations about new ways that we need to do things. Even though the old recipe had been working well, um, now we're looking at a new context yes. where that old recipe is going to get us into trouble. Um, and yet, a lot of the powers that be are not paying attention to the messages that are coming from the climate scientists. Um, what, what is your take on it? I guess maybe, maybe a question here is, um, what does it take to, to inspire change when, um, when there's so much inertia of doing things the same old way? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's a good question. I think that, you know, the, the disaster of the financial collapse mm -hmm. really woke up at least mm. a section of economists mm. that were unwilling to imagine a new way, okay. imagine uh, that efficiency in and of itself might need to be tempered with um, a goal of uh, ecological sustainability. Mm -hmm. and. So that shock to the system helped. Mm -hmm. um, it's uh, not an easy mm -hmm. thing for Americans to swallow. Right. That we might have to scale back, mm -hmm. which is what John Wesley Powell was calling for. Mm -hmm. That we would have to not have everything we want, be able to drive everywhere we want, um, you know, have the convenience mm -hmm. that we're used to. Mm -hmm. And I'll admit I'm scared of that too. Mm -hmm. I know right. that my lifestyle is unsustainable. Mm -hmm. And I'm scared about changing it in a way that would mm -hmm. make me and my family and my sons and grandsons and, mm -hmm. and grandchildren less well off. Yeah. Let's, um, let's take a little different twist there. When, when you are approached, as I'm sure you are, by students who voice maybe some frustration or anger or just being overwhelmed with the environmental situation that they've been dealt, and, um, and they come to you 
and you are a former pastor, and you're very pastoral, um, and ask for some advice about what they should do or how should, is there, if they come to you and ask you, what are some reasons for hope or what are some things mm -hmm. we can do? How do you counsel students like that? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, mm -hmm. uh, because these students that you're talking about are probably the ones you mostly encounter, mm -hmm. um, this, this is the, the question that's coming from you. Mm -hmm. And I actually have no problem counseling them. Mm. I'd say, your anger is well-founded uh -huh. and you need to, you've got that passion, here's some tools you can use. Here's the economic language that you need to understand and use so that you can make headway. Uh -huh. Now go and do good work. Go and do good work. And here's some, some really strong yeah. um, rhetoric as well as um, at, you know, ways to evaluate truth claims and how mm -hmm. to explain truth. And, that's easy. Okay, but there's another group there's of another students. There's another group of students okay. that I mostly encounter okay. who are very skeptical, uh -huh. who are supporters of the current administration, uh -huh. who believe that we can and will invent uh -huh. our ways out of uh, this current situation. Uh -huh. They are similar to or parallel to uh -huh. the people that were uh, uh, hearing what John Wesley Powell's recommendations were and saying that is that's mm -hmm. ridiculous. We right. don't need to worry about that. Okay. And I have a much diff more difficult time <laughs> with that because I'm kind I of can, angry. Yeah, I can see that. <laughs> and yeah. I, I am mm -hmm. trying hard to mm -hmm. present facts yeah. and the data in mm -hmm. a way that that will be convincing. Mm -hmm. But it's almost like you can't bring a knife to a gunfight. Yeah. Data right, and, right, right. and statistics and the, the scientific explanations are almost no match for inflammatory rhetoric. Yeah. And that's where I'm at. I'm, I'm really yeah. frustrated. Yeah. And uh, so I think we need to fight rhetoric with rhetoric. Hmm. But that's a scary thought for me because I'm a data scientist. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, this is where you need to draw on your interdisciplinary friends. Exactly. That's the hope, <laughs> that, uh, which I will talk about. You'll probably ask me yeah. in a second. Like, that is where the hope is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, you, you close your chapter with a couple of stories that are hopeful stories. Um, one of them is an example of Curitiba, Brazil, yes. an urban landscape where there are lots of exciting things happening. And you talk about the, the group of young architects that really stimulated some of the changes there. Um, I think that's an example that connects really well with Mark Bialin's chapter on placemaking and, yes. and think, taking creation care principles and applying them to urban habitats. But I, I wanted to especially ask you about the other example, uh, the Menominee Nation's approach to caring for their land in central Wisconsin. Can you fill in some of those details for us? Uh, yes, and uh, this was a, an example that uh, provided yet another kind of telling parable mm. uh, for us. So the, the Menominee Nation uh, were uh, they're located in the upper Wisconsin area, mm -hmm. and back in the day when, when the um, settlers were kind of moving all the Indian nations off their lands, mm -hmm. uh, the Menominee were able to keep a very small sort of subpar section of their original lands. Um, and the, so back in around the late 1800s, they were given this small parcel, this little square parcel mm. of timberlands. Uh -huh. And the rest of the timberlands of their kind of rich reservation were given away. Well, 
over the last, over 100 years, almost 150 years, wow. the Menominee have lived sustainably and managed mm -hmm. this timber as their primary uh, business. They've mm -hmm. run it as a business and they have many uh, tr businesses, modern day businesses. They use modern you know, timber harvesting technique, techniques, harvesting yeah. techniques. Mm -hmm. um, and since that time, they have cultivated a forest that has yielded over a billion board feet, mm -hmm. billion, uh, half a billion board feet of lumber. And the, the forest itself is more diverse and mm. more vibrant than it mm. even was when they began. The biodiversity is, is, um, is beautiful. There's uh -huh. over 30, you would appreciate this more yeah, than me. Sure. <laughs> There's over 30 tree species, 58,000 uh -huh. individual trees, etc. So it's a great example of how people and the non-human creation can coexist right. to the betterment of both. Right. They, mm -hmm. they had a very both business-like perspective mm -hmm. on their timber, but also a concentric mm -hmm. perspective. Mm -hmm. They honored this, uh, the, the, the land that they had yeah. as a way to uh, survive, thrive, yeah. but not to the point of using it the most efficient way. Right. Which right was what happened mm -hmm. around there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd heard about this arrangement a few years ago from a friend of mine named Bill Van Lopik, who was then a professor at the College of the Menominee Nation. He showed me an aerial view, actually, of the state of Wisconsin, and you can actually see the square uh, of forest that are managed by the Menominee people. It just really stands it, out. It right? stands out, yes. Yeah. And this, this image is actually yeah. on our uh, Illustrated companion uh, site. Yes, okay. because it is so striking. Yeah. There's this green little postage stamp mm -hmm. of thriving forest surrounded by complete and utter desolate desert. Right. And those, those lands around that postage stamp were the lands that were given to the settlers. Uh -huh. And uh, they came in and managed it as efficiently as possible. Uh -huh. There's the contrast. Th that's the contrast. Mm -hmm. They, they uh, pulled out so much profit. It mm -hmm. was just this boom time mm -hmm. and they were thriving. Um, but then it wasn't sustainable mm -hmm. and they used a, a, a method that led to um, complete and utter inability for mm -hmm. those forests to regenerate. Uh -huh. And the Wisconsin government tried to you know, sell those lands to farmers mm -hmm. in the hopes and prayers that they mm -hmm. could um, improve, know, it. improve it mm -hmm. and use those lands for a different use, mm -hmm. but they're permanently scarred, mm -hmm. or at least healing extremely slowly, even uh -huh. in geological time. Yeah. And I think that that's a parable. Yeah. And one small little story is mm -hmm. that at the time that the settlers were there, right next to the Menominee, mm -hmm. and they were just pulling mm -hmm. out billions of dollars, or what we would think of mm -hmm. as millions and billions of dollars <clears> of profit, and they saw the Menominee living much more constrained mm -hmm. lifestyle. They made fun of them. Mm. They said, you're lazy. Mm. They tried to take the land back from them because they didn't think they were managing it well mm -hmm. and that they were just um, inefficient and uh, had a culture that was not appropriate. Mm. And I think that that's a pretty mm. telling story. Yeah, it's humbling. It's humbling. That, that One history. yet another story of how we have to be careful mm. about how we see ourselves. Yeah. And others. I'm wondering if you'd be willing to read a section of your chapter that uh, maybe something that you'd especially like the readers to, to notice. I, it is. This is sort of the, 
I'd say the meat and prophetic potatoes okay, great. <laughs> of my chapter. Good, good. Um, so Western society lacks the will, not the ability, to respond to wicked social problems mm. such as climate change. Uh, in one of his books, John Ross draws parallels between the Dust Bowl and today in describing this lack of will. Ross explains that John Wesley Powell sought to remind the settlers and the politicians that we live in relationship with creation mm. and must adopt an attitude of humility in our relationship with the land. Mm. It was not then and not today an easy message for Americans to hear, Ross writes. And so 100 years of experience and accumulation of scientific knowledge have passed since Powell pleaded for that humility. And in that time, even as our scientific knowledge of the biophysical interdependence mm -hmm. between the human and the non-human creation has grown, we've moved even further away from an attitude of humility. In the technologically sophisticated 21st century, we are even less convinced that we live in kinship with the creation, surrounded by streams of constant information, waves of automation, and mountains of concrete skyscrapers. Living in creation seems a romantic or primitive notion. Nonetheless, all human societies, even technologically advanced ones, are interdependently reliant on the non-human creation. Mm. And so I end with this question. Will we, and Western society as a whole, finally begin to respond in humility mm. to issues such as climate change before we encounter another Dust Bowl? Mm -hmm. Wow, thank you. Thank you very much. Mm. Now, the Beyond Stewardship process involved a lot of collaborative work. <clears throat> this is not just an assignment we gave the authors to write us a chapter and then send it to us and we'll put it into a book, right? Uh, we got you guys together a couple different times and um, there was a lot of interaction. Um, are you, as you think back over the, the time we spent together last summer, are there any anecdotes or experiences, takeaways that you have from that whole process that you'd like to share with the listeners? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the, the biggest gifts of mm. this interdisciplinary process mm. was the gift of community. Uh -huh. uh, just kind of looking at the current situation, mm -hmm. ecological situation, the, kind of the oncoming train in my mind, is it creates desolation and yeah, despondency. Right, and right. I am definitely not optimistic about the future. Hmm. Um, but being in a community with Christians, it was helpful to be constantly reminded that we are yeah. not called to be optimistic. There, hmm. There is quite a few reasons not to be optimistic, mm -hmm. but there is much reason for hope. Yes. Mm -hmm. And hope is not um, happiness in the in the belief that everything is going to come out okay because mm -hmm. of what we're doing, but it's in the belief that things unseen mm. um, and that our, our concrete bedrock mm. faith um, is at work. God is at work right. in the midst. And we have, as Christians, tools within our midst mm -hmm. to, to deal with this. Yeah. And, and as we talked amongst ourselves, it was beautiful to be in that worship-filled mm. community, mm -hmm. to be able to lament mm -hmm. together, um, and to think about how we uh, are stronger as a, you know, mm. as a group and as a Christian group rather than each of us individually, because the work before us yeah. is going to be 
quite challenging. Yeah. It's yeah. no fun being a prophet. It's no fun being a prophet, especially when you're a lone prophet. A lone prophet. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so thanks be to God. Yes. Uh, we are we have this rich community. That's right. Yeah. And we need to remind each other uh, over and over again of those evidences of hope. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And testify. Absolutely. <laughs> Take another religious word, right? We yes. need to testify. And um, there are many, uh, you know, many examples, mm -hmm. both from these ecological recoveries, yeah. uh, but also from other just dreadful oncoming train type events, yeah. such as apartheid in South Africa. Right. You know, the church was a big uh, player in mm -hmm. helping that be diffused and yeah. also helping in the reconciliation afterwards. Yeah. And it, there was a lot of prophetic speaking. Yeah. I think, I think of it like reconciliation is hard work, but because it's hard work, it's, it's so deeply meaningful. Yes. Right? Yes. If it wasn't so hard, it wouldn't be so meaningful, I think. That's absolutely, absolutely right. Yeah. I, I agree with that. And that's why I think God created us as creatures that have to be in community. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And we are at our best when we are. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, so did your thinking and your work um, change? I mean, if you think back on the process, how is your chapter different today than it would have been if you had sat and written this chapter by yourself largely? Oh. <laughs> well, the original draft had a lot of anger in there, mm, mm. Um, a lot of blame and shame mm. of people not listening to John Wesley Powell, particularly mm. the government. I was, mm -hmm. I, I just, I was appalled at mm. our, our incredible ability mm -hmm. uh, to just um, unwittingly or willingly commit such mm -hmm. grievous sin. Mm -hmm. And I, I, there was not very much hope yeah. <laughs> in this chapter. Uh, and it was also deeply personal. Uh -huh. You know, I, as you mentioned at the beginning, I'm very right. multidisciplinary. Right. Um, I have lived in a variety of different contexts. Mm -hmm. And much of this was, much of the story that I'm telling, uh, I was living personally. Right. You know, I had lived yes. personally as a pastor in the Native American community. I was living the results of yes. kind of the Western society decimating their Mm -hmm. um, traditional ways of being and and seeing what it look what happened and mm -hmm. um, and then how their continued culture mm -hmm. um, brought those pieces back together mm. and and yet you know I don't see that making any strong waves or mm -hmm. you know so I, I was kind of uh, at a loss your chapter was my chapter was really yeah. angry uh -huh. and I uh, was able to tell that story mm -hmm. many different times, many different ways to to very charitable, mm -hmm. loving mm -hmm. ears from mm -hmm. all of the different facets mm -hmm. of these different personalities and different mm -hmm. disciplines. And they pulled out, helped mm -hmm. me pull out the mm -hmm. hope in the midst of it. Mm, very nice. Yes. And yeah. it also became very clear that it's you, this is going to be a multidisciplinary right. Um, you know, process. Right, and it needs to be. It needs to be. Yeah. We need each other. Right. We don't teach people <laughs> how to do that very well. Yeah, that's right. We have our own silos way too frequently, right? Yes. With our own comfort we do. zones. And within the academy, but also within yeah. the church. Yeah, that's true. 
If, if the listeners are interested to learn more about work that you're doing, um, maybe you can say a little bit, what are some other projects that you're working on now that this, yeah, this, is, <laughs> this yeah. is in the rearview mirror? Uh, well, you know, as I mentioned earlier, um, for some reason, uh -huh. God gifted me with, you know, a head for numbers and a heart for people or society. Mm -hmm. And this book, this chapter mm -hmm. was just an incredible gift to mm. be able to, to pull those pieces together mm -hmm. and to write about that. Um, and now I'm, you know, back to exercising my head for mm. numbers and I'm, I'm doing something that's a logical outcome of this chapter for me, mm. but it's probably not as interesting to <laughs> listeners because it's, uh -huh. it's basically that prophetic call that I, I think mm -hmm. we're all asking Christians and communities mm -hmm. to, to issue about mm -hmm. thinking ecologically, but it's now that prophetic call to my own economics discipline. Mm -hmm. And so I'm having, I'm using language that's, you know, the language of economics mm -hmm. and it's quantitative metrics. How do we measure an economy's uh -huh. threat from ecological disaster or threat to ecological disaster using very kind of mathematical uh -huh. approaches? It's very satisfying mm -hmm. um, that I can do that. It's not easy to do an elevator pitch about mm -hmm. it. Right. Um, but that's, that's what I'm working on right now. And I'm, mm -hmm. I've seen how it's connected to other work that's being done within economics. Uh -huh. And that gives me hope too, even for my, my poor lost yeah, discipline yeah. that I think is creating some of the problems <laughs> that we're having to deal with right now. But you're raising a prophetic voice as a professional economist yes. uh, in, yes. that, in that discipline. I'm, I'm seeing where I'm at and uh -huh. trying to do what I can. If there are some listeners who would like to learn more about what you're doing or this sort of thing, uh, where might they go or what might you, where might you yeah. point them? Yeah, the, you know, we've got some links on the you know, accompanying website, but my, mm -hmm. my faculty webpage okay. at Calvin is uh -huh. available and has all the things that I've been talking about and mm -hmm. links to different, not only different things that I've either written or, um, or teach about, but also things that I find really fundamentally interesting and uh -huh. um, helpful Okay. in thinking about these questions. Uh, good, thanks. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Beyond Stewardship podcast. Thank you again, Becky. I've really enjoyed talking <laughs> with you today. I've enjoyed it too, Dave. Right, thank you for thank, this invitation. And thank you for the gift of your chapter uh, to this book. Okay, goodbye, everyone. Beyond Stewardship is available from Calvin Press at calvin.edu slash press and from major online retailers. Thank you.